Well, I'd like to have John 11 open in front of you, and uh, specifically the first few verses really in verse 4. And really, at the moment, many in and around the fellowship are going through some deep trials and troubles. And as a church, we're facing challenges, and really it's throwing us back onto the Lord and to come to him. And in speaking with a number this week in various visits, etc., one aspect came up again and again, and we spoke a little bit about it at our midweek meeting. And that is, how do we battle anxiety and fear when things are hard? How do we face those times when we're filled with doubts, when we're concerned over the future? I was reminded really of this passage because we're shown here that God really is in control. And that as his people, when trials and sufferings come to us, they're never without purpose. And even though there are times when we don't know in the immediate instant what the Lord is doing, we're to trust him, to take him at his word, to believe his promises, to know that for his people, he works together all things for our ultimate good and his glory. And when we really understand that God is in control of all things, we should trust him and we should believe him even when things don't make sense to us, when those things around us are happening, when we're struggling, when the challenges come, we are to turn to him and to take these things to him and to believe him. The problem is we can know these things with our minds. We can know the truth that God is in control. The question is, do we really believe that day by day? Do we believe that even when our hope seems to be gone? that there is the Lord and he really does hold us in his hand. I mentioned a few words that John Newton wrote on Wednesday, and he said this, Though troubles assail and dangers affright, though close friends should fail and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the promise assures us, the Lord will provide. And it's living that by experience. We know the truth but it is living it out day by day. And in this instance, we see that Mary and Martha, they seek the Lord in this trouble. And believers through the ages, they have known trials of suffering, of an illness, but God has used those moments to overwhelm them with himself. And many have known much of the loveliness of Christ in the hour of their need. It's a Scottish minister called Samuel Rutherford, and he wrote this, How is it your faith sees only the black side of providence, yet it has a better side, and God shall let you see it. Losses, disappointments, loss of friends, houses, or even country are God's workmen set to work out good to you, out of everything that befalls you. Come all crosses welcome, so I may get my heart full of my Lord Jesus. That's a wonderful thought, but I wonder how many of us really have that approach when suffering comes. Now, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were devoted followers of the Lord Jesus, and yet they're faced with this tragic situation, and that is that Lazarus is dying. And so in their distress, they cry out to the Lord because they know that the Lord loves Lazarus as one of his people. And so they come with this plea, and we see it in those opening verses, verse 3, Lord, behold, him whom you love is sick. 
Now, the love of God in Christ to the believer is steadfast. It is unchanging. It is everlasting. It is never to be doubted, even in the most difficult trial or suffering. And so they go to the Lord pleading for their brother, the one whom the Lord loves. Now, I was thinking there that to know that the Lord is there in that situation is something that we all long for when difficulties come. Think of the experience of the psalmist many times. Psalm 102, hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call, answer me speedily. Surely we've all felt that. It's interesting, someone writes, it is written, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, yet to our shame, how little we know him as such. That crying out to him is so vital. You know, when the people murmured against Moses, we're told that Moses cried out to the Lord. When Hezekiah received the threatening letter from Rabshakeh, he spread it before the Lord in Isaiah 37. When John the Baptist was beheaded, his disciples went and told Jesus. And, you know, this is, you know, so clear for us. These examples are there. You know, we've got a wonderful high priest in the Lord Jesus who indeed understands he's full of compassion. We know that he too, when he was on earth, was acquainted with grief. He sympathizes deeply with his suffering people and he invites us to pour out the anguish of our hearts before him. And so the first thing that we need to do when hope seems gone is to turn to the Lord. It's so simple. And prayer, it turns our focus towards the Lord who is totally competent, he understands us, And he hears us as we come in the Lord Jesus. And when we come and we worship him and we set ourselves before him, it helps us to deal with that threat of bitterness which can so easily take root in our hearts because it brings us back to him to think on his character, to think on his promises, to remind ourselves that our God always acts with purpose. He is always fulfilling his plan. He knows exactly what he is doing even when we're caught in a fog, as it were. You know, when we go to the Lord, we have to remember that he is the most high and he's not our servant to do what we want. Sometimes there are those who think they've got the right to order the Lord around. And we can be tempted, can't we, when we're in difficult places to to demand to know why we are experiencing these things to know why we're in this pain or in this trouble or with this loss. Sometimes we fail to recognize the arrogance of that approach. We have to be careful that in our pride we don't demand that the potter explains to the pot. And that's not the way Mary and Martha approach the Lord. They bring their heart to him, they commit their way to him, they trust him, and that's our privilege too if we're believers this morning. You know, there are times in our lives when questions are inevitable. But, you know, when we look to the Lord and know that contentment in him, we are able to say, even when I cannot understand, I can still trust him. We can trust that our Father in heaven knows best. And when trouble comes rushing in or some distress, you know, our first instinct naturally is we we just want it gone, don't we? We want it sorted out. And it's okay to pray for that. But ultimately, we would and should want everything else that God's will be done, regardless of the outcome. 
And with the Lord's help, we have to keep reminding ourselves that circumstances are temporary, that our Father knows what he's doing in them, and that they cannot rob us of the joy and glory that are ultimately ours in Jesus Christ, if we know him. And that comfort, that contentment is gained in our Christian lives when we go through those times of trouble, those times of discomfort, because then we learn to say, my father is in charge. He is working for my good as his child. I don't need to understand. I can trust him. I have him. And that is enough. And friends, we have to go through these valleys at times to learn and relearn that because we so quickly forget. And so Mary and Martha, they're in this situation and they come to the Lord. And it's interesting because we also have this issue of needing to trust the God who knows the future when we don't. You know, there's something in all of us that wants to know how things are going to turn out. But men don't know the future, whatever they may say. It's impossible for us to know exactly what will happen tomorrow or next week or in five years, ten years. And so you find that there are many people who fear the future. But for the Christian, the Bible tells us that there is one who does know, that God knows. And it's wonderful that we see here the Lord Jesus, who is God, deals with this situation in which a friend of his was dying and he announces the outcome. You look at Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It's likely that by the time the Lord Jesus received the message, Lazarus had already died. And so this declaration is so powerful. The declaration of the Son of God. And he says that the final outcome of this will be a demonstration of the glory of God through resurrection power. He himself being the resurrection and the life. And friends, if we're believers, we have a solid foundation when we know and believe that our God knows the future. What is unknown to us, he knows. It's in his hands. None can thwart his purpose. He knows. He loves his own. He's concerned for his own. It's wonderful, isn't it, when we get those times in Scripture when God has purposed and gives us glimpses to show that he really does know the end from the beginning. Think of Isaiah. And uh, in the midst of that great book, the prophet is dealing with the emptiness and deadness of pagan idols. And in the midst of that, God takes on those idols, speaking to them as it were, on the basis that they are unable to tell the future. And he says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons. Let them bring forth and and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them, know the latter end of them, or declare to us the things to come. Show the things that are to come thereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, you are nothing, and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. You know, the believer, the one who knows God in Christ, is not like those who run after idols. We come to a God who knows the future, who holds the future, who directs the future. No one else can tell the future because no one but God controls it. And the fact that he chooses to reveal some aspects of the future to us in his word is one of the proofs that he alone is God. 
And God does not only reveal the future to show that he's God, he also does it out of graciousness and mercy to warn the ungodly of the judgment to come, but also to encourage his people that all things are in his hand. Think again of Isaiah, Isaiah 42. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burnt, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord, your God, your Savior. Wonderful confidence that we can have in him. Or think of Genesis 3, following the fall, God comes to Adam and Eve with words of judgment, but at the same time, a future promise. And so God speaks there after sin comes into the world of the hardship, the toil in work, the pain in childbearing. But his words also speak of the coming of one who would eventually destroy the works of Satan. Genesis 3.15, that, that wonderful gospel proclamation even there in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So it's a wonderful proclamation that there is one coming, a great deliverer. And Eve, you know, it shows the limitations of human thought. Eve was so taken up with the promise that she names her first son Cain. And Cain means here he is. In other words, he is the deliverer. This is what I think. Well, he wasn't the deliverer. The Lord Jesus Christ was the promised deliverer. You see, God knew that plan was there from eternity. And then Hosea, God uses the life of Hosea to illustrate the pending judgment upon the scattering of the children of Israel. And even the names of his three children are so symbolic and give an insight as to the future. So Jezreel means scattered. Lorohamah means not pitied. Loami, not my people. And so he's speaking of this judgment that will come. But at the same time, God speaks of the blessing that will come after the scattering. And so he encourages those who would live through the period of hardship and judgment because he showed them that there were better things ahead. And so Hosea 1.10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. It's wonderful because it gives that, that insight into the fact that God is able to take a place of judgment and turn it into a place of blessing. His purposes are never thwarted. He is the God who knows the future. And we see that here with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He knows what the outcome will be with Lazarus. Only God knows the future. He has the power to reveal the future. Jesus declares the outcome. And he says this will be for the glory of God. But here's the challenge. The battle to believe that. The battle to take God at his word. You see, by the time those words of Jesus would have got back to Mary and Martha, Lazarus would have already been dead for a day. And no doubt they thought that if, if Jesus had only been with them earlier, he could have saved their brother. And surely that would have been the, the glorifying aspect to God. 
But now the only glory that they could conceive of would be in that final resurrection. In fact, we, we read that, didn't we, in verse 24. Martha says, I know that he'll raise, rise again in the, the resurrection on the last day. But the problem is that was a time beyond each of them. And really, from their perspective, that all seemed too late. The hope seemed gone. Do you know, maybe there have been times when we felt that hope is gone in a situation and that any intervention would now be too late. But friends, God is never late. And there's always hope with him. And what Mary and Martha could not see was that the outcome that God had planned would result in far more glory than they could ever have begun to contemplate. You know, there are times when God's intervention results in something far more glorious than we could ever have imagined. And so when the storms come to us, even though we can't see and we can't understand, we've got to trust him. And we've got to take heart, even though the days are, are dark and sometimes they're hard, sometimes things look bleak, to trust him. To resolve to believe him when everything else seems lost. Because we don't necessarily need to understand all that God is doing when we find ourselves in the middle of his mysterious ways. Because in the end, God will show that his ways are high above our own. And his ways are always for our good and his glory. You know, I mentioned this before, but one puts it like this thing. It's a wonderful way of seeing it. The depth of the darkness makes the starlight even more wonderful. The impossibility of a set of circumstances can be used to show his splendor. The valley of dry bones can become a mighty army. Most significantly, though Jesus was dead and buried, God is the God who loves to raise the dead to life. He is the God who brings the light of Easter morning out of the midnight of Good Friday. Jesus was going to bring Lazarus from the grave. A tremendous miracle, a display of divine power. He knew what he was going to do. The battle for Mary and Martha and the others who were there was to trust him, even when it didn't make sense. And so when we look at this resurrection and we see that the Lord Jesus does go and he does bring Lazarus back, what impact does it have upon those who were there? And I just want to draw out some closing sort of observations. Well, think of Lazarus himself. But later on in the passage, Lazarus, you know, it doesn't actually record any words of Lazarus in Scripture. But we're told that he became a great witness for the Lord. You say, well, how did he do that? Well, the power of a resurrected life. I mean, he just had to be walking around to show that this God was glorious, that this Jesus really was the Savior, the power of a resurrected life granted by the grace and power of God to the glory of God. He had been dead, and yet now he was alive. You know, just imagine the impact upon him, you know, his whole demeanor. He was a man who had died, who had been buried, and yet now was very much alive. Do you know, that physical miracle points us to the miracle of grace and conversion. See, a wonderful picture of the gospel in what happens to Lazarus. Dear friend, let me ask you, are you converted? Are you saved? Have you been born again? The Bible says that outside of Christ we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
And surely life is impossible. Outside of Christ, you are spiritually dead. But then the gospel says that when God breaks in, when he comes in that mighty saving power, he brings life to those who are dead. And the Spirit of God works to show you your state, that you're a sinner, that you're condemned, that you're lost, that you're dead. There is conviction, but then you are given that power, that ability to turn from your sin, for then where do you turn? Well, the Holy Spirit shows you the Savior, shows you the Lord Jesus, shows you his perfect life, his death upon the cross, his tremendous resurrection, that he is alive shows you his love for sinners, shows you his grace. And though our sins be many, there's a wonderful truth that his mercy is more. And if we come to Christ, he can forgive you, he can save you, and he can cleanse you and wash you and he can make you new, and he gives you life. That resurrection power works in you and you are brought from death to life as you repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And God is glorified. Just as he was glorified in the resurrection of Lazarus, he is glorified in the salvation of sinners because it is his work. And so I ask you, are you a miracle of grace this morning? Are you a believer? Lazarus, impacted by this wonderful intervention, what about the sisters? What impact did this have on them? Well, it deepened their faith and their understanding. You know, remember, maybe if you've read John's Gospel, you would know that Martha had been resentful of her service, yet after this encounter, she willingly served the Lord. And Mary, Mary was granted to understand that Jesus was going to give his life so that all the Marys and Marthas and Lazaruses of this world might not have to die spiritually but through Christ enter into newness of life and an eternity of God's blessing in heaven. And Mary showed her understanding of this when she anointed Christ's head with the ointment, for the Lord said she did this in anticipation of his death and burial. So through this tragic experience with Lazarus and then to go through all the emotion and experience of that, the faith and understanding is strengthened. What about the disciples? Similar for them, really. You know, the death and resurrection of Lazarus had an effect on the disciples that was God-glorifying. If you look at verses 14 to 15, see what Jesus says to them. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. You say, well, wow, that's a surprising sentence. You know, it's astounding. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes. That part alone would have shocked the disciples. Maybe it shocks us too. Lazarus is dead, and yet Jesus has this attitude. How can that be? Well, because he's saying this, don't be surprised. Don't be dismayed. There is nothing that happens to my own people that I have not approved, and what is more, nothing has been approved from which I have not also approved good consequences. Lazarus died, that is true. The sisters are sorrowing, that is true. But the end will be good for Lazarus and good for the sisters and good even in your case because your faith will be strengthened and you will bear witness of me to the ends of the earth. You know, that is a lesson that we need to learn and learn and learn and learn and hold on to when troubles come. 
Even though we cannot see it, if we are the Lord's, he has purposed and ordained good to come from all circumstances. And there are times when we have to say, Lord, I can't understand, I can't see, but I know that in the midst of this trial that you are with me. And whether my suffering is for the sake of another, use my trouble, strengthen me, that you may be glorified. Help me to trust you, to grow in grace and the knowledge of you. You know, we don't have any promise. You know, come to Jesus and all your sorrows will disappear. It's not what the Bible says. But we have the promise that his grace is sufficient. And he will keep us throughout whatever we face. Think of the friends of the family too. Death and resurrection of Lazarus has an impact on them. If you look at John eleven nineteen, it says many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. And so they're there when the Lord Jesus reaches the tomb. And as he's praying, if you look at verses 41 to 42, Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So you've got this great crowd. They're curious. They knew Lazarus was dead. They knew Jesus had come. Many of them have got influence in the community. Did these people believe? Some did. Look at verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. That's wonderful. They came to sympathize and they remained to believe. Some believed. Others did not. Verse 46. They just went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. And to these last unbelievers, the resurrection of Lazarus This glorious miracle only served to harden and condemn them. And even though it was clear proof of Christ's power and his person, they wouldn't accept it, and what is more, they wouldn't have him. And consequently, it increased their guilt. But even in this, God was glorified. Because you see the graciousness and the mercy of our God, the mercy of the Savior, to demonstrate his love and power to all who saw even those who would turn away in unbelief. And so the friends of the family, some were led to believe, some not. And then lastly, what about the Lord Jesus? Jesus has said that the sickness of Lazarus was not unto death in that final sense, but was for God's glory. He then adds, doesn't he, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And you say, well, how is Jesus glorified through this? Well, that which brings honor to the Father brings honor to the Son. Right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we see in John 2.11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's a, a sort of concluding note to the first miracle of the Lord Jesus. And then what we find here in our passage in verse 40, if you look at that, you have another summary of this miracle. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So in John 2, we're told that the miracle manifested his glory. Then in John 11, this miracle was performed to reveal the glory of God. And so you've got Christ's glory and God's glory. And in John 5, 23, it says, All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
So we see that the, the glory of God is demonstrated and Christ is glorified as God in this. Then also in this resurrection of Lazarus, we see that Jesus is glorified because he's shown to be the sovereign one over all circumstances. You know, if he was anyone, anything less than his claim to be the Son of God, Lord of glory, you know, just think he put himself in a very difficult position. Jesus delayed his return to Bethany until Lazarus had died and been buried for days. Jesus delayed. That situation was only made harder through his actions to our eyes, the delay. Only he could remedy it. He makes them wait. He makes them wait so that they would see the reality of who he is. Do you know, one of the things that we have to learn as believers, if that's our state this morning, is that there are times when God makes us wait upon him. God does that with us. It's the Lord's way. If God wants you to trust in him, he puts you in that place of difficulty. If he wants you to trust him greatly, he can put us in a place of impossibility. Because when a thing is impossible, we who are so prone to try and move things along in our own strength, and our own ingenuity, in our own ways, we have to say, Lord, it's got to be you. You've got to work. I can't do this. And the Lord will say, it's for you that this has happened. For your family, for your friends, for your acquaintances, for all those looking on, and it's for my glory. Wait upon me and see how I will appear for you. And Jesus said that he was glorified by that which was to come, not only at the resurrection of Lazarus, but often when he spoke of being glorified, he was speaking of the cross. In John 7, 39, the Spirit had not been given at that time because the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, meaning he had not yet died. John 12, when the Greeks come to the Lord Jesus, he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's speaking of his death. And the disciples, they struggled with that. His disciples, it says in John 12, didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, his death and resurrection, then they remembered these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And you say, well, how does that link with the resurrection of Lazarus? This would be the thing that would actually lead to the circumstances of the death of the Lord Jesus. This was the final spark that was needed to light that powder keg of the hostility of the leaders against him. It would lead to Calvary. And for our Savior, his hour had not yet come, but it was drawing closer. He knew the outcome. He was undeterred in his purpose. He would triumph because he is the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That was his promise. And he would bring it to pass. And you might be thinking, well, I understand that God is in control. I understand that trials and sufferings in this life are no accident for the, for the true child of God. I know that we're meant to have peace in the purposes of God who, who knows the future and who will lead us on, but it's still hard. And you know what? You're right. It is hard at times. It's hard to suffer. We wouldn't choose it. But God has promised to give us what we need to get through it. And the Lord Jesus has gone through all before us, and we are called to 
bear that as it were as his followers, but he never asks us to do anything that he has not done first. He never asks us to suffer without at the same time promising to be right with us in the midst, to lead us on and lead us through. And the fact that he has gone before, the fact that he has triumphed, is that great encouragement and hope to us. He died, but is risen. He suffered, but he has overcome. And if you are a believer, so it will be for you. For he will deliver you. He will bring you through. He will bring you through your trials, for they're not unto death, but for the glory of God, that Christ might be glorified in you. And we can trust that all our difficulties, God is continuing to fashion in us a faith more complete, more perfect, to make us like his son. And ultimately to bring us to be with him in glory. And the clouds that may cover you at this moment in time, they may be darker than any that you've known before. They may be lingering a long time. They may seem as though they're blotting out the sun but God knows how to take even those clouds and through them work his wonders, which may be so unlooked for and yet so marvelous that they'll leave us on our knees in worship. In the moment, of course, God's time may feel like a thousand years. Yet from the standpoint of forever, no calamity can befall us that will not be a light, momentary affliction preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And eternity is long enough to make amends for all, all that has fallen upon us in this life. And so we're to take heart. When hope seems gone, there's always hope with Jesus. And today we are one day closer to that day when we, from the wilds of the desert, shall flee to the land of the blessed. When life's tears shall be changed to rejoicing, its labors and its toil into rest, where every tear-stained face will feel that tender touch of Jesus Christ. I don't know all the details of what each of you are facing right now, how painful it is, but I do know that for the believer, Christ is with you, and he will keep you, and one day it will be made plain. And until that day, we can trust him. And that's the battle. We've got to trust him. And I pray that God would grant you the necessary grace to endure and to give the glory to him in every situation, that he might be exalted and that we might be upheld by his loving hand. Amen. Amen.